Hello, I'm Kyle Dyer, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, February the 3rd. The freezing cold temperatures really made the start of this week tough for a lot of us Coloradans. But when things started to warm up midweek and the Broncos struck a deal for a new head coach, things started to turn around. Let us all hope that Sean Payton brings the Broncos everything the team has lacked this past year. There is hope. To talk about some other insight of what's going on around Colorado this week and how it impacts all of us, we have tonight Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, as well as Krista Kafer, columnist with Denver Post, Luigi Del Puerto, editor at Colorado Politics and the Denver Gazette, and Chris Rourke, the new managing editor of Denver Business Journal. Thank you all for coming. Chris used to live in Gunnison and so this cold weather was no big deal for her this week. But still, January was a big month with more snow than usual and more staying on the ground on the front range for longer than we're used to because of these cold temperatures. Now, that helps out with the snowpack, yes, but water and the lack of it is still a huge issue for our state and others in the West. This week, Colorado and five other Colorado River states all agreed to a deal where they would dramatically reduce their water usage. Patty, last year, the Colorado River was at its lowest point in 1,200 years. It's astonishing because you look at the pictures, say, of California and all the big floods, and you think, how can we still be in a drought? And you look at the snowpack in Colorado, but it is really bad. So the Colorado River normally supplies 15 million acre feet. It's been down to 12 million over the last like 10 years. The last three, it's only been 10 million acre feet. And to give you an idea, an acre foot covers one acre with a foot. It's enough for two households a year. But we are now having growing households in the West and we just don't have enough water. And it's looking really, really bad as we go on. So good for six states to kind of come up with an agreement six months after they were supposed to have come up with an agreement. But that bad California is taking all our water and not behaving itself. No. Uh, Krista, this became very contentious. And, and it's, is it really resolved? You know, no. Between the upper basin, the lower basin? So we're in the upper basin, obviously. The water originates here. It originates in Utah. It trickles down to the lower basin states of Arizona and California and Nevada. And leave it to California to throw a wrench in, in, in the design, right? So they're the ones that take the most amount of water. Uh, that said, they also have the greatest population, and they do have uh, the most amount of agricultural output of any state. So the water is being put to good use. But they did not participate in the agreement. Uh, the other states said, hey, we're willing to cut our water use. California then said, no, we'll, we'll, we'll do our own plan. Well, their plan basically says um, that Nevada and Arizona can take the hit and that California is not planning on doing anything, really, because they've got senior water rights and they're happy to do you know, what they're doing right now. And they don't necessarily want to be part of a, a, a seven-state solution at this time. No, they do not want to play and work with anybody. Luigi, what exactly did the six states sign to, not California? What is this deal about? What is proposed? And will it work if California is not a part of it? At the end of the day, this agreement requires the states to reduce their uh, allocation from the river. And what it does, it, it reduces the releases from Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And in addition, um, depending on the level of the water, uh, less water is going to be released to the lower basin states as a result. Now, there are all kinds of tiers, and so we're talking between roughly 250,000 acre feet of water, something like that, depending on uh, which levels. And then it goes progressively, you know, the reduction gets progressively more as you go down. 
that's the main point. The, uh, California, obviously, is the, the, the elephant in the room. Uh, and California has what we call the senior water rights. They can kind of sit tight and watch the other states take the hit. That's the right that they have. That's not good. Uh, we're talking about a threat to more than just water levels as well. The dams on Lake Powell and Lake Mead, respectively, are both in danger of seeing water levels drop so low that they might not be able to produce the hydropower that supplies electricity all over the West, Chris. Yeah, that's right, Kyle. I mean, uh, the Colorado River feeds into Lake Mead and Lake Powell. In the 1990s, those two reservoirs were at 100%. Now they're at about 28%. And, um, you know, the two dams is the Hoover Dam. It has a hydroelectric plant. It serves about 1.3 million people. The Glen Canyon Dam, which formed Lake Powell, services 5 million. So that's quite a bit of, of people. And what people don't realize is that there is something called the, it's called the minimum power pool elevation. Often you hear about Deadpool, the, but this minimum power pool elevation is actually above Deadpool. Deadpool is when the water will no longer fall downstream over the dam. Um, but this minimum power pool elevation is what is needed uh, with water to generate power. And, and it's actually much higher than Deadpool. So you, you have a situation where these dams are, are dangerously close to that minimum level, um, won't be able to produce the power, and that affects six, you know, six million people. In this situation with the dueling plans, I think we have a situation where the perfect is the enemy of the good. You know, they, the states should come together and, and come up with a good plan so the feds don't have to step in, which is, will likely happen. They, and they said they won't let it get to the point with electricity. Correct. Yeah. Um, now let's talk about another environmental topic that has a lot of people talking all over our state. We are in the midst of a series of public hearings across Colorado regarding voter-approved Proposition 114. Krista, that is what mandates the reintroduction of wolves here in Colorado. So yes, back in uh, 2020, Voters approved this. It was very, very narrow, so it was just over 50%. And if you look at the breakdown, it was wealthy counties in the mountains, places like Aspen and Vail, um, as well as uh, people along the, uh, the, the mountain range uh, here on this side of the slope uh, that are in the cities that voted for this, uh, for this, uh, this new law that allows for reintroduction. And I'm not unsympathetic to reintroduction in the sense that rewilding does have a certain kind of romantic mystique. Let's bring back the lands to the way they once were. I get that. I ended up voting against it because I feel like it denies ranchers the tools they need to protect their flocks. And this new plan that has come out that says, hey, uh, we are going to reimburse ranchers for lost cattle, the, the ranchers are saying, well, in some instances, if we have a, a, a prize steer or prize heifer out there that's killed, this amount of 8,000 is not going to cover it. Secondly, if a wolf attacks your pet, I mean, is in the, in the middle of killing your animal, you are not allowed to kill that wolf. And I will say this, and probably shouldn't say it on the air, but if somebody attacked my dog, Bacon, um, I would kill that wolf and bury the body. So I think we're going to see um, some of that happening because how do you not protect the animals in your care? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you will see a real divide, a pretty dramatic and I, I hasten to add radical divide between the urban centers who have this conception of the wolf as this majestic creature who belongs in these lands, and they should be allowed to roam, and they should be allowed to thrive again with the tangible benefits that they bring. And then you've got the ranchers and the farmers 
and their supporters who are saying, look, this is a big problem for us. The amount that you're going to pay us for the livestock that we're going to lose is not enough. The disruption that this, this creates is not going to be sufficient. And this is a problem. That said, the state has to implement what the public has voted on and approved. Right. But they're still listening. They're still having these meetings. And one of the things, Chris, that's coming out is something that, that uh, Chris had touched on is when is it okay to use lethal force against these wolves? Right. And, and like you said, I am from Gunnison, so I have a special interest in this topic. I've reported on it before. Um, I'm very much in touch with the ranchers and other people. You know, there are people in the community that support it, like Krista was talking about. But the thing that the ranchers are concerned about is the cost. And it's not just the cost of losing an animal or um, lower birth, or not birth rates, conception rates. Um, there's a real concern about trying to implement deterrence. Many of the ranches in Gunnison are covered in snow in the winter, and one of the deterrents is to have a, a fence with flags on it to scare away the wolves. I don't know that that's going to work there. So these ranchers are pushing for lethal measures because they say it's more effective, and it is more cost effective for them. Um, you know, you, you have a situation where also the Wild Earth Guardians are proponents for a reintroduction. They're saying the draft plan does not do enough to protect the wolf. The draft plan calls for once um, wolf populations reach 150 for two years or 200 overall, that this animal can be listed as a game animal and be hunted. Um, the Wild Earth Guardians are pushing for populations around 700. I think there are only 500-something wolves in Yellowstone Park, so they're going for an extraordinary large number. They want this wolf protected. I think at the end of the day, the wolf kind of loses out. I do have an interesting point about the Gunnison Valley specifically is that it's home to the Gunnison sage grouse, and that is a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, Wild Earth Guardians pushed really hard to get that bird protected, and now they're pushing for a predator to come back into the valley. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that unfolds. It will. The Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission is the one that has to take all this in and make a plan. Um, they're already saying, you know, Patty, this is not going to make everybody happy. But these wolves have to go out by the end of this year. Right. By the end of 2023, the first ones will be introduced mm -hmm. on the Western Slope. There is a concern about how to protect your livestock. And maybe what we can do is just send Krista out to go all Yellowstone on them. <laughs> or maybe Derek Wolf, you know, the mountain lion oh, yeah. with yeah. the bow and the arrow. Yeah. He can go take care of them. People aren't paying attention to how much discussion there has been. These aren't the only hearings Colorado Parks and Wildlife have had. They've been talking about this for over a year. And they realize people are not going to be happy. There will have to be some things that will change. What level of force can be used? What will the compensation level be? I have a pretty good faith if, if no one's happy, they've done a fairly good balancing act of taking what we voted on. Yeah, they are having to deal with that. At the uh, state capitol this week, a bipartisan group of Colorado lawmakers decided that now is the time to do something to get us out of the number one spot from auto thefts in the U.S. Luigi, they are proposing legislation with much tougher penalties for car thieves. One of the proposals that they're talking about is a, a, a bill that would tie the penalty not to the value of the car, but to the behavior of the offender. And what that means really is that if you're a repeat offender, you've done this and been convicted twice, something like that, then the penalty uh, becomes tougher, either class 
five or even class three, depending on you know, how often you've done this one. And again, it, I, I think it's a clear uh, acknowledgement on their end that maybe what they passed and maybe the current regime is not working. There's, a, I think, a legitimate debate about what's causing this and what's not causing it. And, and one of the sides is saying, look, if you keep the repeat offender in jail, that's going to help. Uh, on the other hand, there's, you know, the other side of that debate is saying that system has not worked in the past, it's not going to work. It's class three to class five felony based on behavior. For an example, it is a, a repeat offender is somebody with two prior convictions. And um, I think they now uh, have bumped that to a, a class three felony, which is up to 12 years in prison. Um, looking at my notes now, I just have to go to, if you steal a car and hold it more than 24 hours, that's a class four felony. And then if uh, you have unauthorized use of a vehicle, including theft, that's class five. Of course, aggravating circumstances can also play into this, whether the car is damaged, whether the suspect tried to change the car's identity by scratching out the VIN number, or perhaps changing out license plates, or also if the, if the vehicle was used in a crime, which we see that so often now. Um, I did find it interesting that what is still a misdemeanor is under this proposal is joyriding. You take a car for under 24 hours, there's no damage to it. Whether they return the car or it's you know, found and, and taken back, that's only going to be a misdemeanor. And we're talking about, Patty, 40,000 vehicles were stolen last year in Colorado. And I was looking through Westward. I mean, you have written stories about this every year for the last five, six years. This has been a problem for a long time. Right. We're only lately paying attention nationally, like the we're number one. Mm -hmm. But it has been an issue. And the injustice, really, if you think about people who really need their cars, they might not be great cars, they might be horrible cars, the odds are good. The people with the least valuable cars need them the most, have the fewest options. So this is one where at least leveling the punishment for the val and it, the value of the car doesn't matter. It, behavior of the perpetrator is much more important to pay attention to. This will get some kind of justice, and maybe if it really works, we'll have fewer thefts. I wonder if Governor Polis has talked about, and he did in the state of the state, uh, we need to cut down these car thefts. But again, he was part of lessening the penalties a couple years ago. Yes, so uh, back in 2021, he did sign legislation that made that you know $2,000 less car. If you steal that car, it's a misdemeanor. Now, to be fair, these kinds of laws do go back to 2004. I don't know what the legislator, legislature was, I don't know, smoking. Um, why would you base the crime on the value of the car, especially as Patty pointed out, that if you're lower income, modest income, you're the one that owns those cars. I mean, I have a car that's got 200,000 miles on it. I, I'm not sure it's worth $2,000, but it's my only transportation. Thank goodness it's a stick shift. I'm hoping most of those guys can't drive it. But we need to make sure that people who are stealing cars are put behind bars because it is it is affecting real people's lives. You got to be able to get to work. You be able to get, you know get your kids to school, get your kids to childcare, um, get to a, a medical appointment. And this is not one of those victimless, victimless uh, crimes that somebody just went out, and, you know, had a little fun with your car. They had a little fun with your car at your expense. And so uh, there needs to be some teeth in it. A, a billion dollars last year uh, worth of cars were stolen. Um, and uh, it's time to put an end to that. And a lot of them are crashed too, right? So then you're totally out of luck. Yes, just just really quickly, and this, this crime part in particular affects 
low-income people the most. Let's talk about now the Denver mayor's race. As we see in other elections, those with the most money seem to have the best outcomes, and Denver is trying to change that. Chris, there is only one Republican running for Denver mayor, and the rest of the field is Democratic, right? Um, and he is putting a lot of his own money into his campaign. He is. For a while, he was leading uh, the pack in, in money that he had. Uh, he's been surpassed this past week. Andy Rougeau, I caught him on the radio uh, just the other morning, and he is a Republican, and he has real Republican messaging. So I, he's put about a half million dollars into his campaign. He's raised another 31000 And what's interesting is he's the only candidate not participating in the Fair Elections Fund, which means he does not get He's not taking matching funds for what he raises. That means he can also um, take contributions up to $1,000 where the, the other candidates are strained to lower levels. Um, you know, we haven't had a, a Republican mayor for 60 years. And in listening to him, he's uh, got the traditional um, messaging, Republican messaging on crime and homelessness. I don't know that that plays to the audience of Denver, being a highly democratic um, city. We also see some big Republican donors, big names um, like Pete Coors, uh, backing Kelly Bruff. And so he, he does have a lot of money. We'll see if that is impactful. I, I don't know. Um, we'll just have to see. Mm -hmm. The Fair Elections Fund, Patty. This is the first time in this election, this, this spring, where candidates, what they've made, what they've received in donations can be matched by taxpayer dollars. Well, and actually, it's nine to one by taxpayer dollars, and mayoral candidates can get up to 750000 from this fund. Now, they just dispersed another round this week, and we're a little over $4 million that's gone out. We have some doubts on whether or not the $8 million, which is the total budget, whether it'll be enough to cover not just the first round, but the runoff, because there will be another round for matching for the final two mayoral candidates. So far, it's really interesting. You can't see who's catching fire. Both Leslie Harrod and Kelly Bruff are clearly raising more money. They got a big match, which put them up against Andy for his own donations to the campaign. But you don't feel who's catching fire yet. I still think it could be anyone's game, and it might not matter how much money they're raising. What if they, we do have the runoff and we've used the $8 million? City Council is going to have to vote on whether or not they fund more. Oh, okay. Um, Chris, is 70% of voters back this idea of the Fair Elections Fund. Um, what are your thoughts on this? So 2E did get a lot of support. Um, I think it just sounds really great, like, oh, we're going to get ordinary people. They're going to get in. And even if you can only donate 20 bucks, it's going to be matched. But here's the, the kind of unintended consequences. We actually now have more money being raised this election cycle than in the past. Definitely lower limits favor self-funded candidates. Um, so we have uh, at least one candidate who's putting a lot of money in uh, on his own. And then those that are relying on this fund are relying on essentially taxpayer funds. As a taxpayer, and thank goodness I'm not a Denver taxpayer, there are candidates that are running that I wouldn't want to send a dime to. So you're basically co-opting the average taxpayer and saying, you have to pay into politicians' funds so they can run for office, including people whose, whose persona, whose strategies, whose character, and whose policies are something that you disagree with, you still need to pony up. I think that's uh, inherently unfair. And it's not just the mayor's race. City council, people running for city council in different seats. Luigi, um, it seems like there's a race within the race, right? Who gets the most money, the fastest? 
definitely there is a race within a race, and, and money does shows a money that show you how viable your candidacy is. I mean, if you're not raising enough money, mm -hmm. I think you don't have any, any business running to begin with because that means you're not getting enough support, enough base support to begin with. There's not a whole lot of buy-in to whatever idea you have into solving Denver's really big mm -hmm. problems. Now, the idea of public financing, it's not new. Like, we see that we have that at the federal level. States do it, uh, you know, all the time, and now it's getting implemented. Um, at, for the first time ever in the city of Denver. Um, I think what we're seeing is some sort of a separation. I think Pat is correct. I think it's still too early. Now, again, I just got here, okay? So I don't may not know what I'm talking about, but I think it's early in the race. But you are seeing a bit of a separation because there are people that are getting a ton more money, and there is a self-funder uh, who is a Republican. And, uh, you know, we've got big problems in Denver. Uh, they all have ideas. And uh, let's see if they can run with them. Okay. Now, let's kick off our right lightning round where our panelists talk about the good and the bad that has transpired during this week. Patty, let's start it off with you. Well, the Colorado courts have been very controversial over the last few years, especially ethics issues at the Supreme Court. But there was a recent decision on the definition of reasonable doubt for Colorado trials that has mm -hmm. defense lawyers very concerned. And I've got some reasonable doubts about the new definition, too. Okay. Like millions of other people, I'm very angry and using bad language about Frontier Airlines. I just found out that the screw up that they made over Christmas, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to give me a refund. And so, because I have this time on camera, I'm going to use it for revenge. Do you mean Frontier or Southwest? No, uh, the fr Southwest, I think, actually, like, made up for their errors. Frontier did Frontier, not fail. Frontier's just like, no, we're going to charge you for our cancellation. They did. Yes. Mm, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm still waiting for the city of Denver to pick up my trash on time. What? <laughs> still. Last time you were here, we were talking about that. Hopefully, it's not the same trash. <laughs> it's not the same trash, but uh, you know, I just it just points again to just how grave these problems that we have in Denver. That whoever is the next mayor needs to solve this. Like th these are not new problems. And these are not unsolvable problems, but they're really difficult ones. The basic ones are the most difficult ones to solve. Yeah. Well, mine's not quite as serious, but it's a little known fact about myself that my favorite holiday is Groundhog's Day. And this week we celebrated Groundhog's Day and I got up early and I watched the live feed of Puxatani Phil coming out with all the fanfare and all the fireworks. And that little twerp saw his shadow. <laughs> so it looks like we're in for another six weeks of winter. I'm very cold worthy, like you mentioned at the top yes. of the show, but I'm ready for spring. I am too. I know. Those people, though, sure have a good time at that event, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they have a good time. All right, Patty, something good that happened. This well, week. when you look at Denver, it's like Groundhog Day every day, isn't it? The <laughs> same issues. Yeah. But I'm going to talk about something that was really unusual. John Fielder, the photographer, mm. donated... 5,000 of his photographs to History Colorado for public and commercial use. He makes the state looks gr look great, and he is great for that donation. He is a great man. So I don't like cake, don't hold that against me, but I do like cookies, and last night I had a cookie made by Jack the Baker, the Lakewood Baker, who just endured yet another count against him in the court. I, I imagine he's headed back to the Supreme Court at some point. Does make delicious cookies, and you know, this time uh, some dude sued him because he refused to bake a transition cake for a transgender thing. And uh, you know, this whole idea that you can force somebody to participate in your celebrations and in things that, that maybe you agree with it, that they don't, 
is really an anathema to, to free speech and to our First Amendment rights and to just a, a tolerant society. So I, uh, I just want to say delicious cookie and good luck, Jack. What kind of cookie? It was a sugar cookie. Oh, okay, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. in the shape of a frog. And it was uh, had a lot of sugar on it. It was delicious. <laughs> I see some green still. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little for later. Luigi, what made you happy this week? Well, let me let me preface this by saying I grew up in the Philippines and I was in Arizona for 16 years, so I was very happy to see that it was 45 degrees yesterday. And for somebody from Arizona saying, "Hey, 45 degrees is great," that's just crazy. <laughs> Well, I think celebrating the entrepreneur. We had news this week uh, from the Secretary of State's office and from uh, CU's business school that in the fourth quarter, new business filings were up 37%. And when you hear all the bad news about the economy, you see the bad indicators. It's really great to know that there are brave people out there still willing to start businesses. Of course, delinquencies and um, disillusions were also up, but not in a way that really um, sent any flags. So, you know, hooray for the entrepreneur. I want to add one as well. I'd like to add CU Boulder's new Center for African African American Studies opened up on Wednesday, the first day of Black History Month. All right, thanks you guys for coming. We appreciate your conversation. Thanks for watching everybody tonight as well. You can always catch this show anytime you want or share it with friends at pbs12.org or streaming on YouTube. And if there's an issue that you'd like the panel to discuss or if you have any comments about some of the things we talked about tonight, we want to hear your feedback either on our social media pages or email us at cio at pbs12.org. Thank you for watching. I am Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week when hopefully it is warmer here on PBS 12.